Good morning, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. This is issue number seven, which corresponds with January 30th of 2022, and it's specifically volume 12, letter number seven, coronavirus update number 54. I'm your host, Dr. M, and welcome. Let's start with some free thoughts. Having natural infection from COVID prior to getting infected with the Delta variant provided much better immunity than vaccination alone. This information comes to us from an analysis of New York and California data sets. They also found that people infected and vaccinated prior to seeing Delta had the best outcome, and people neither infected nor vaccinated had the worst outcome. This comes to us from Leon et al., 2022. The other free thought I had here was, we need humility around COVID data. It was a statement by Marty McCary, and I totally agree. Now, this newsletter will be a little bit more opinionated than I have been in the past, as I feel it's time to call spade a spade as it relates to children's health in this pandemic, soon to be endemic, if not endemic already, situation. I do not expect everyone to agree with me. However, as always, discourse is key, and you are welcome to send me your thoughts via the newsletter link in the website. The data is showing us that we are in a much better place from a death risk perspective, despite massive case volume. The world around masking, testing, and quarantining needs to leave the alpha, beta, and delta protocol world of the past and enter endemic Omicron scenarios that are more in line with what we're seeing now. It is time to release the children from all these annoying and mentally taxing realities. Kids are not the problem and no longer need masks unless they have self-risk based on immune or disease parameters. That is to say that they themselves have higher risk than others. Therefore, they're the ones who are going to need to mask up for the foreseeable future as Omicron is endemic. The rest of the children are going to need to find some new norm that likely should be without all these mitigation measures. It is time to shift the public policy perspective to protection of the individual through self-behavior, i.e. vaccinate, boost, and wear an N95 mask. The remainder of the children need a normal life that includes seeing facial expressions, being educated in person, reducing the mental stress burden of a pandemic fear, and so much more. These issues are real. Pandemic stress and fear has gone on for two years now. It is a lot to bear for young children. There's no change at all in the reality that vaccines are key. However, the vaccines are no longer working well to prevent transmission of SARS-2 variant Omicron. The good news remains that the vaccines absolutely prevent bad outcomes, which should be the message to everyone. Please get vaccinated. You have no prior COVID immunity and or natural disease, but also have major risk factors. Omicron is 91% less risky from Delta based on some study data. However, 9% comparative residual risk in over 100 million unvaccinated people is still a large number of seriously sick people that could be hospitalized with a subset possibly dying, driving up hospitalization. This is problematical, but Omicron is less dangerous. North Carolina is beginning to turn the corner on this huge wave as it is in the rest of the country. The seven-day moving average of cases for the U.S. in the recent weeks has dropped from its peak of 800,000 cases per day to less than 600,000. Omicron is outcompeting Delta based on the data with 98 plus percent of the cases being Omicron. Early data shows that Omicron is killing less people than Delta by a wide margin. 
If you have had two doses of an mRNA vaccine or had previous natural infection, you have a very, very, very small risk of significant hospitalization and therefore death from Delta or Omicron variant based on statistics overall. However, you are likely to get some illness from Omicron now as it has escaped the two-dose series protection and boosters as well. If my risk of death is 0.000033 once vaccinated with a two-dose series or survive natural infection coupled to the fact that vaccines are no longer effectively preventing transmission, what are we talking about then? What is the big deal now? Are we not in a really good place in this pandemic? These are all interesting questions to ponder, and we'll get through some more of this as we go through the newsletter. As it stands today, the United States has had 74 million known cases and almost 880,000 deaths. As with the first newsletter in this topic two years ago, keep solace in the fact that there is a 99 plus percent chance for survival for all of us regarding of, regardless of vaccination. However, mathematically, you now have a 99.99998% chance of survival once vaccinated and the vaccine safety for the mRNA vaccines continues to still look good. These are important things for all of us to keep in mind. Some of the polled questions from the past, now that you have a new data set for Omicron and its risk, are you going to get the booster? The respondents to the question said no in 65% of the cases. The other question was, if you are high risk, are you going to get the booster? And in that case, 67% said yes. Okay. In the newsletter at SalisburyPediatrics.com or DocSmo, you can get the link to the graph that's shown. But Peter Atia's Twitter feed had a graph where he compared U.S. death rate for people under 35 as a multiple of COVID death rate. And what he noted was, if you're zero to five years old, your risk of dying of a motor vehicle accident is 11 times that of COVID. Your risk of dying from homicide was 10 times that of COVID, and your risk of dying from drug overdose was two times that of COVID. Pretty incredible to think a drug overdose is possible in a zero to five-year-old, but these are things that happen. U.S. death rate under 35 years of age from five to 14 years showed a 10 and a half-fold increased risk of MVA, a six and a half risk of suicide, a five-fold risk of homicide, and a 1x risk of drug overdose. Then you have the 15 to 24-year-old age range, and this was roughly across the board, 9x risk of motor vehicle, 9x risk of suicide, 9x risk of homicide, and a 9.8 risk of drug overdose. And then you get to the 25 to 34-year-old age range, and you have 2x risk of motor vehicle accident, 2.6x risk of suicide, 2x risk of homicide, and 7x risk of drug overdose. So as you can see, this is a very poignant representation of risk and where we should be spending our monetary and energetic capital in the prevention landscape for young people. We need to have more indignation around the deaths from motor vehicle accidents, suicide, homicide, and drug use. I would like to see a national message fighting these diseases for young adults. We need perspective as a society. Mental health is our biggest crisis next to nutrition. COVID is not a problem in comparison for children. This is not to say that we should not teach people true risk from COVID and take individual and mitigating measures. It is more a reflection of where our financial and intellectual capital should be directed at this time. There are much bigger and deadlier fish to fry. Remember two things. COVID is here to stay. It is with us. And also, 
all at-risk individuals can now effectively vaccinate and wear an N95 mask for their own safety. Remember, if you have had two doses of the vaccine, your risk of death is close to zero. This is very, very important. Okay, so this is where I get into some of my opinions. And again, take it for what it's worth is what I believe based on the data and what I see today after two years. Everyone knows by now that I despise emotional fear-driven decision-making. The entire pandemic has been a study of this process. Everyone also knows that I love and respect non-emotional science-based decision-making. To that end, Drs. Atiyah, Demanya, Gandhi, and Makari have produced a three-hour podcast around COVID, nailing down the science and opinions based on the same as we sit today in this endemic state. There's a link in the newsletter, or you can go to Peter Atiyah's podcast directly. Here are some of their thoughts. One study noted that 52,000 Omicron cases showed no ventilation mechanically for lungs and only one death. This is akin to about 250,000 people out of that community as one in five people are test positive and known to the healthcare system with the remainder are testing positive at home and unknown. 83% were in the hospital for less than two days. 98% of the current cases now nationally are Omicron derived. Dr. Gandhi noted that in South African study, that prior infection or vaccination was the bulk of the reasoning behind Omicron's death reduction. They attributed Omicron being 25% less morbid, dangerous, than Delta based on these genetic mutations. This remains incredibly important for those vaccinated and or infected prior with survival. Getting exposed to the whole virus as opposed to just the vaccine spike protein fragment will give you a better long-term immune response because the immune system will develop antibodies against all of these viral epitopes, viral fragments, as opposed to just the spike protein. Thus, we will see many viral antigens reacted to well over the future. Then the subsequent antibody production is vast and varied. This is a very good reason to think about not boosting if you are healthy and with no risk factors for death, which sits at 0.000033 of vaccinated. This is also what we're seeing in Europe. The European Union, WHO are not recommending for young kids the booster. In my opinion, our children's mental health and physical health needs to take primacy over pandemic fear at this time. They're in a very, 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 very low risk scenario for COVID. However, they remain in a high risk scenario from a mental and metabolic health perspective. The scales do not favor current school-based mitigation measures based on risk and health from Omicron and the downstream events that relate to it. Let's talk about boosting. If you are a young person, boosting remains questionable in my mind, especially if you are a male with myocarditis risk. The WHO and the European Union are not recommending it at this time, and I tend to agree. The CDC is recommending down to age 12. Let us say that you are 18 years old and male. If a young adult receives a third dose of an mRNA vaccine, which provides marginal to no transmission benefit for 90 to 110 days and minimal disease severity reduction because it's almost zero already based on a two-dose series prior, what's the point? Are our youth supposed to protect the unvaccinated? The vaccinated boosted with risk factors? For how long? Then what? Do it again every three months and again and again in perpetuity as immunity wanes rapidly? Has this ever been done before while studied? To my knowledge, no, never. mRNA vaccines are brand new, let alone boosting ad nauseum. Natural infection is also providing excellent immune solvency based on recent study data. Why are the healthy youth being held to the standard because they are in school and college where the unvaccinated at-risk individuals are not and cannot be forced to do the same? 
Why are colleges and universities holding these young adults hostage when they are not at risk anymore? Even after having two doses, it makes little logical sense to me. The data in my mind does not support this behavior. Israel's data shows that the fourth dose is almost useless for healthy people. Then what? Third dose and stop, even though Omicron or the next variant doesn't stop propagating? This is just the data and my take on it, but I can't see any reason for boosting in young people unless you have risk factors. So each individual always must weigh and measure their personal risk tolerance, life choices, and guidelines as provided. Masking, on the other hand, is a bit different. Now that COVID is now here endemic, is there any logical reason that we should continue masking all the time everywhere? There is no longer any evidence that the non-N95 masks help reduce transmission of Omicron from child to teacher or any other environment, making masking in schools questionable for the average child. Couple this to the risk that children are really not the point of spread to anybody else. If a child is high risk or a teacher is unvaccinated or high risk, they should wear a well-fitted N95 mask to mitigate their risk. It is no longer feasible to continue masking in schools from now on based on death risk and the spread risk of Omicron. This virus is here to stay and masking cannot be our children's future. Mental health, as far as I'm concerned, demands that we end these processes. Omicron is significantly less risky for children. You can see the quick hits number two that I'm, uh, excuse me, number four that I'm going to get to in a minute for the data, but it is less risky. You know, from the podcast, I agree with everything Dr. Gandhi says. You know, choose to mask based on your personal risk, and that is where it should end. Your risk tolerance dictates your desire and need to mask. Mandating mask use anymore is, as far as I'm concerned, no longer necessary, nor warranted, especially for the children who have suffered far too much. The cloth and surgical masks do not prevent transmission of Omicron well at all. These are the masks that most children are wearing in an effort to please the policymakers. This is not science-driven. This is protocol-driven. With previous variants, these policies were somewhat defensible because transmission was less impressive with Delta and kids remained low-risk spreaders anyway. But Omicron has thrown this out the window. Omicron is a reproductive rate that makes anything less than a well-fitted and persistently worn N95 mask useless. For me, N95 masks are better at preventative transmission, but that is for the at-risk individuals only. The rest of us, healthy individuals, need not mask from here on out based on an endemic disease state and vaccine availability. If you are vaccinated, your death risk is tiny. We've said it over and over again. If you have higher risk, wear an N95 mask regardless of your vaccine status because especially if you are unvaccinated, your risk is higher. However, vaccinate to reduce the risk if you are unvaccinated. Take your risk out of this, right? And then you may not need to wear the mask. Hopefully, the CDC and the state school systems will begin to transition to endemic COVID strategies. I can tell you, I know where I stand very clearly on this one. Hospital overwhelm has happened over the last couple weeks to month in some parts of the country, but the remainder of the country has been fine. It's only partially due to Omicron, as hospitals that are reporting whether Omicron is the reason for admission found that 50 to 70% of the COVID positive admissions to the hospital are incidental findings and no longer the cause for admission and or death if Omicron is the cause. The more highly vaccinated the region, the higher the likelihood that the positive test result is unrelated to the admission, up to 70 plus percent. 
The hospitals with Delta as the main player remain hit hard by admitted unvaccinated patients. The other issue coming to pass is that most new tested cases of COVID are pretty much Omicron now. Actually, to me, this is great news for hospitals, as the majority of these patients are sick for one to two days, not ventilated and not dying, if they get in the hospital. This is vastly different than Delta. As North Carolina's data has shown, and when I looked at it the other day on the website, COVID, IU, COVID ICU use has dropped from high of 30% in October, the peak of Delta, to 16% now and dropping fast as Omicron replaces Delta. Use of ventilator reduced from peak of 22% to 10% during the same period, despite huge risks through increased cases over the many weeks. This is all occurring in the face of massive volume. Thank God we are not seeing Delta's morbidity tied to Omicron's infectiousness. Hospitals would have been overwhelmed if it was Delta with Omicron infectiousness. This would have been a train wreck like no other. My blessings counted because that is not the case. My friends in the hospital say that they are seeing lots of cases, but the severity is definitely in line with what these stats say. Prior infection naturally and or prior vaccine has been the greatest reason for the drop in death rate in relation to all variants at this time. The group at greatest risk currently is unvaccinated and or with comorbid disease or advancing age. The message will remain. If you are unvaccinated and previously never infected, get vaccinated and take the risk of death pretty much out. All-cause risk is probably roughly 0.2%. However, if you are older than 50 years of age and or have comorbid disease, your risk is well north of 1% and climbs with age and disease state. This is not trivial. Take it seriously. To me, this pandemic now feels much more like endemic influenza, minus the shift in drift mutagenesis that is unique to influenza that causes it to be such a tricky creature. But COVID has its own mutations that's making it interestingly tricky. We are getting massive immunity nationally now as Omicron burns through the U.S. like the flu does annually. There are very few virus-naive Americans left in the United States that have not seen either Alpha, Beta, Delta, uh, Mu, Omicron. You know, we, most of us have some form or another seen it, and the ones that haven't, the ones that are at the highest risk, would hopefully get vaccinated. The big headache remains that elderly folks and folks that are significantly diseased can still suffer from Omicron, even if vaccinated, just like we do with influenza every year. All right, let's move on to the quick hits. Number one, new data shows that vaccination with two doses of mRNA vaccines followed by natural infection is equivalent to natural infection followed by vaccination in providing super immune responses. Quote, current COVID-19 vaccines significantly reduce overall morbidity and mortality and are vitally important to controlling the pandemic. Individuals who previously recovered from COVID-19 have enhanced immune responses after vaccination or hybrid immunity compared to their naive vaccinated peers. However, the effects of post-vaccination breakthrough infections on humoral immune responses remain to be determined. Here, we measure neutralizing antibody responses from 104 vaccinated individuals, including those with breakthrough infections, hybrid immunity, and no infection history. We find that human immune sera following breakthrough infection and vaccination following natural infection broadly neutralize SARS-CoV-2 variants to a similar degree. While age negatively correlates with antibody response after vaccination alone, no correlation with age was found in breakthrough or hybrid immune groups. Together, our data suggests that the additional antigen exposure from natural infection substantially 
boosts the quantity, quality, and breadth of humoral immune response, regardless of whether it occurs before or after vaccination. This comes to us from Bates et al. in 2022. Let me tell you, folks, this is vitally important data. This study is a march toward understanding the long view of endemic COVID. Natural infection allows for the B and T cell repertoire to see all pieces of the viral structure. Therefore, we make vastly different antibody response to all the differing structural proteins versus just a fragment of the vaccine-seeded spike protein. This provides much better long-term immunity. The entire purpose of vaccinating in the first place is to prevent hospitalization and death. There was a fleeting belief that we could get this thing under control through herd immunity. That ship sailed a long time ago. We are in an endemic world now. Again, we sit at a place where logic dictates that the unvaccinated get vaccinated. The vaccinated with no risk factors will get great immunity with natural and Omicron infection. Those with prior natural infection, no prior vaccination, and waning immunity could get one dose of an mRNA vaccine to induce excellent immunity. Very logical and real-time study options here. Number two. The most common COVID-19 Omicron variant symptoms are cough, fatigue, congestion, runny nose. This is expected based on the new pathophysiology of Omicron. Other symptoms include many seen with Delta, fatigue, muscle aches, headaches, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Fever is less common now owing to the reduction in systemic disease. Number three, having natural infection from COVID prior to getting infected with Delta variant provided much better immunity than vaccination alone. This information comes to us from an analysis of New York and California data sets. They also found that people infected and vaccinated prior to seeing Delta had the best outcome. People, people neither infected nor vaccinated had the worst outcome. Leon et al. 2022. From a Reuters article, quote, Health officials in California and New York gathered data from May through November, which included the period when the Delta variant was dominant. It showed that people who survived a previous infection had lower rates of COVID-19 than people who were vaccinated alone. That represented a change from the period when the Alpha variant was dominant. Silk told the briefing, before the Delta variant, COVID-19 vaccination resulted in better protection against a subsequent infection than surviving a previous infection. However, in the summer and fall of 2021, the Delta became the predominant circulating iteration of the virus in the United States. Surviving a previous infection now provided greater protection against the subsequent infection than vaccination, he said. But acquiring immunity through natural infection carries significant risks. According to the study, by November 30th of 2021, roughly 130,000 residents of California and New York had died of COVID-19. This comes to us from Steenhuisen, S-T-E-E-N-H-U-Y-S-E-N, in 2022. For me, this data says... That once vaccinated, natural infection is the way to go unless you have a risk of death by a comorbidity, a disease, of, or advancing age. I cannot find another way to spin this information. Another reason to seriously question boosting once fully vaccinated. We cannot boost our way out of this mess. Natural disease may be mother's nature, Mother Nature's way of leveling the playing field in our long-term favor. Number four, from a new study. We see that children under five years of age have significantly less risk of severe disease with the Omicron variant. Quote, among 7,200 infected children, the Omicron cohort, average age was one and a half. 47% were female, 2.5% Asian, 26% African-American, 13% Hispanic, and 44% white. 
after propensity score matching for demographics, socioeconomic determinants of health, comorbidities, and medications, risks for severe clinical outcomes in the Omicron cohort were significantly lower than those in the Delta cohort. ED visits, 19% versus 27%, hospitalizations, 1% versus 3%, and ICU admissions, 0.14 versus 0.43%, mechanical ventilation, 0.33 versus 1.15. Control studies comparing Delta to Delta cohorts show no difference. Wang et al., 2022. This study is very important because it gives us a measure of risk based on the new meteoric rise in cases in Omicron for kids. Number five, asymptomatic cases of infected Omicron variant patients is higher than previous variants. A study analyzed the rate of positive low cycle threshold in PCR tests, indicating higher viral load in patients and tracked symptoms. Asymptomatic carriage is five times higher with Omicron than Delta. This comes from us from Garrett et al. 2021. What this is telling us is how much infectious transmission is related to asymptomatic Omicron infected people. It appears to be significantly more than previous variants, and that is ex- and excuse me, and than expected. These higher viral loads presumably indicate why we're having such greater spread. If somebody is asymptomatic and going out in the environment and has a high viral load, they will get more people sick because nobody's going to know they're sick. Based on previous data sets, the asymptomatic persons cleared the virus rapidly, leaving their spread window at least to be shorter. Thus, most disease is still likely occurring from the super spreaders or who are the symptomatic folks who have comorbidities and diseases. However, all things that existed in the past now may no longer be true with Omicron. We're still learning. Six, fourth booster dose, not adding anything pretty much that we can see to the immune system's fight against Omicron. Initial reports from Israel show the fourth booster dose with either Pfizer or Moderna vaccine shows a modest increase in antibodies, but clinically, this added no significant benefit against Omicron. The antibody level returned to um, the person to a pre-third booster, oh, excuse me, third booster dose level. This comes just from Fetterman at all 2022. It remains odd that Israel is recommending a fourth dose for all over the age of 18. Can't understand that decision based on the data. More data is showing that the vaccination past the third dose for the population has little value. In high-risk groups who could die of a new variant, i.e. immunocompromised, a fourth or even a fifth dose may be necessary. But that's speculation and based on your doctor's decision with you based on your disease. A one-size-fits-all approach seems senseless now. Number seven. COVID booster number three added major benefits to reducing infection and the risk of hospitalization death from Omicron in individuals over age 50. 44 times less hospitalization, 44X less hospitalization in over 50 age range and 49X over 65 age range. Comes from CDC. So this is some news that says in 88% of the individuals over 65 who had been fully vaccinated and 63% of them had been boosted, making this risk reduction come to life. The over 50 group sits at 74 and 54% respectively in the, va- in the vaccination category. The take-home message here remains that if you have advanced age and comorbid disease risk, boosters make a ton of logical sense if you have these risk factors. Number eight, new variant BA.2, which seems to be a sibling of Omicron, appears to be almost identical with maybe a marginal amount less, excuse me, more infectiousness. But there's zero data that's more deadly, which seems to be a relief to us. Number nine, post-acute sequelae 
of COVID-19, otherwise known as long COVID. Quote, post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, otherwise known as PASC, represent an emerging global health crisis. However, quantifiable risk factors for PASC and their biological associations are poorly resolved. We executed a deep multiomic longitudinal investigation of 309 COVID-19 patients from initial diagnosis to convalescence, integrated this with clinical data and patient report symptoms. We resolved four PASC-anticipating risk factors at the time of initial COVID-19 diagnosis. So, risk factors for developing long COVID include type 2 diabetes, SARS-CoV-2 RNAemia, Epstein-Barr virus viremia, and specific autoantibodies. In patients with gastrointestinal PASC, SARS-CoV-2 specific and CMV specific CD8 positive T cells exhibit unique dynamics during recovery from COVID-19. Analysis of the symptom associated immunological signatures revealed coordinated immunity polarizing polarization into four endotypes exhibiting divergent acute severity and PASC. We find that immunological associations between PASC factors diminish over time, leading to distinct convalescent immune states. Detectability of most PASC factors at COVID-19 diagnosis emphasizes the importance of early disease measurements for understanding emergent chronic conditions and suggests PSC treatment strategies, end quote. Sue et al. 2022. So what does this mean in English? This study basically says that long COVID is associated with dysfunctional immune polarization due to antecedent risk factors, including chronic hyperglycemia and autoimmune polarity. So people who consume large volumes of sugar-based processed foods or have insulin resistance, diabetes, will have a lot of blood sugar in their bloodstream, which drives immune dysregulation. Autoimmune polarity, where we have problems with autoimmunity, our immune systems triggering autoantibodies that could be against really important factors that are involved in maintaining normal function, leading to these symptoms we see as long COVID. These issues are known to be related to intestinal dysbiosis or abnormal microbes in your gut, bacteria, poor nutrition, and overuse of medicines, including antibiotics and antacids. Dysbiosis was also noted by Dr. Fasano in children with multi-inflammatory syndrome. The children with uh, difficult delayed disease also had systemic viral proteinemia, which is a hallmark of intestinal permeability. We could do a whole podcast on this alone. Oh, you're right. We're going to. Two weeks. Dr. Fasano is going to be here. So excited to dive deep with him. The autoantibody theory is also well studied, as we have seen over the pandemic. Individuals with autoantibodies against immune surveillance mechanisms have higher viral loads, worse disease, and longer time to recovery. Men are the most affected demographically. Number 10, states and European country data provides a unique look at death rates related to mitigation measures. Many coastal states, urban centers, and countries chose to follow aggressive lockdown and fear-based mitigation strategies in an effort to control a virus that could have cared less about their belief in control. Controlling nature has never been a human strong suit. We more often make things worse in an effort to control. We see data from New York and New Jersey had over 3,000 deaths per 100,000, just like Florida and other southern states that took entirely different approach to pandemic mitigation. Sweden, once called negative things by the New York Times and many other media outlets, far outperformed the United States, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom, and others despite taking much more liberal, non-restrictive policies that kept their population mentally untaxed and economically solvent as much as possible in a global pandemic. They get huge props for keeping their kids happy and healthy, despite the maniacal nature of some of these other mitigation strategies. All right, that's it for quick hits. 
I want to move on to a couple more opinions based on, you know, science, what I've learned, what I've seen. Uh, I'd skip this section if you don't want my judgments because some of them are a little aggressive. First, you know, we really have let our children down in this pandemic. I will go to my grave knowing the fact that we didn't do enough to stop some of this fear-based, you know, mitigation, desire, measures, all these things thrust upon our children despite having really quality data that this didn't make any sense. I'm beyond frustrated and have lost a lot of faith in our systems of government and organization, especially teachers' unions that prioritize teachers' health over a child's health, despite very, very clear data that children were never the main issue in the pandemic and that adults were not being affected by the children. It was actually the other way around. Yet we kept them masked, afraid, uneducated, over-tested, over-involved, and mentally stressed. Again, we're going to rue the day that we look back on these inner-city poor children who had no access to Zoom technology, were uneducated for over a year, were not given quality nourishment, and were also left in homes where there was a lot of stress, toxic environments that these kids have respite when they go to school, and they're struggling, and we left them, really with no good answers to why. Countries around the world show that this didn't make any sense, yet we kept it going for far too long. We'll rue this day when we ushered in an era of panic leading to policies that stressed out our children. They're our future, yet we cared more about those who've already lived much than those who have not. It's really a backwards thought process for an advanced society such as ours. Number two, you know, for me, the CDC and the government have caused an unbelievable volume of mistrust by not understanding the value and truth of natural immunity for survivors of the first and second wave of the pandemic, as well as the value of targeting vaccination to high-risk groups as the data poured out as opposed to draconian policies of fear. This led many to not trust the government and therefore shun vaccines altogether, which is a huge problem. This is probably the biggest problem. Having natural infection from COVID prior to getting infected with Delta variant provided much better immunity as we've seen in the data set from Leon et al. They also found that people infected and vaccinated had the best outcome. This should be the stuff we're screaming from the rooftops. We have long known that natural immunity is very useful in the fight against disease. Somehow we forgot this reality in this pandemic and shamed anyone who spoke up against it to this point. And we're seeing it now to this date. People have had natural disease, had almost no, no problems, everything's great, and they're being now forced to have two vaccines in order to travel, right? Or, you know, you, you're, you're, you've had two vaccines and you feel great and people are telling you you need to boost even though you've had natural disease and have no symptoms, I, you know, all of these things, I just think we need to have a more nuanced approach to understanding. Vaccines are so vitally important in the fight against infectious disease. But the messaging was so bad, so politically charged, that a, a huge swath of American populace didn't trust the government, therefore didn't partake, leading to tons of unnecessary death. It is very clear that if you had COVID and survived, then your immunity would be excellent. As your immune system had seen the entire virus, your subsequent risk of death would be zero or very close to zero. These people did not need a two-dose series that was three weeks spaced apart, all, even though it should have been spaced apart 12 to 16 weeks to become immune solvent. In fact, studies have showed that the second dose made people feel worse and added no benefit immunologically if you had been previously naturally infected. Again, no nuance to policy, broken trust, and the immediate answer should have been, if you have been a COVID natural uh, survivor, a booster dose of the vaccine will give you super immunity. Stop there. No vaccine cards mandate two doses if you naturally infected. And these are things that make sense based on the data. Then, you know, Delta shows up 
and we see weakened vaccine effectiveness for transmission, but excellent coverage against death and hospitalization? The answer was not boosters for all, but boosters for the high-risk groups and then natural infection for all else if they chose it to get better immunity long-term. Hospitalization and death is always the metric that we want to fight. We knew the groups at risk, those over the age of 50, those with high comorbid diseases, and those with immune deficiencies, which is now even further relevant to the vaccine escaping Omicron variant. To boost now means that you are essentially declaring that you will boost every three to five months in perpetuity. We have zero evidence that repeated boosters are safe and have good evidence now that natural infection is very useful if you are previously infected or vaccinated. And oh, by the way, Omicron is 91% less deadly than Delta, and studies showed the hospitalization issues and, and vac- uh, ventilation issues are not really coming to pass to the same degree. And people are not suffering from the lung disease that we saw with Delta and the systemic disease that we saw with Delta, with the terminal lung fluid filling up with hyaluronic acid and flooding and damaging these people terribly. Again, the science has been here. However, the scientists are not leading the policy decisions. The policymakers are suppressing good science to push a policy that most of us realize is dysfunctional. Pushing vaccination was a very good policy, right? But how did you go about it and how did you alienate people into not wanting to do it? That's the part that we need to go back and look at over time to make sure that we don't do this again if another pandemic occurs or, God forbid, COVID becomes a more deadly variant. So for me, it's very clear that individuals who are dying from COVID and why they were dying, as shown in the COVID pathophysiology paper in Section 3, from early 2020, we should have been messaging where it lay. Advanced age, obesity, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, kidney disease, and other disorders are the folks that we should be talking to heavily about taking care of themselves, making sure they're on their medicines, making sure they're eating super healthy, exercising, anything you can do to raise immune health. Essentially, most diseases related to lifestyle choice that are immune damaging. We fear discussing these lifestyle decisions more than shaming people into mask wearing and carrying vaccination cards. I just went to Boston and had to present a vaccine card to eat at a restaurant where the same inane masking policies are in place where 90% of the patrons are sitting without masks the entire time. While if you get up to go to the bathroom, you need to put a mask on. Or if you walk into the store, you have to have a mask on. I mean, this stuff is so illogical. It makes everybody cringe at the understanding of what's going on with society. What about a natural infection card? What about a car that has a printout of your PCR positive state in a previous time and you are perfectly healthy? Why is that less realistic as protection? I cannot give you an answer. It is also very clear early on that longer range dosing between the first and second dose of the vaccine should have been what we did, provided better immunity. Yet the CDC prevaricated, no nuanced approach yet again, and we stuck with a one and three week time frame, which you know, basically didn't show as good long-term immunity, so we had to boost faster, right? So again, all this stuff is just a struggle for me because the decision data was there. It just wasn't decided upon the way it should have been and still isn't. A person who receives an mRNA vaccine develops immunity to the spike protein only and as shown to date, needs repeated boosters to maintain some form of transmission prevention and does not develop variable antibodies against mutant proteins as happens with natural immunity to the extent that we need it. This again states the obvious. If you are high risk, the vaccine and boosting repeatedly is worth risk taking, doing it. You should. For the rest of us, I'm not sure this makes any sense anymore. If my risk of death is 0.000033 once vaccinated with a two-dose series or survive natural infection coupled to the fact that the vaccines are no longer effectively preventing transmission, 
What are we talking about then? Why am I doing this? It makes sense to me I should get natural infection now. If someone has better data stating as to the why this doesn't make sense, I would love to read it or see it. You know, for me, I, I just can't find any good data or any understanding for this. So let's move on to section two. Sugar is the problem, folks. And we've known this for quite a while, but, you know, after so long, it really needs to be just screamed from the rooftops yet again. I had a dysfunctional conversation with my ICU colleagues a while back about the efficacy of lifestyle modification and the need to push it or the lack of need to push it. You know, and I'm more determined now to push this message after many of these individuals state it's not worth talking about. The message that modern medicine is here to save you is not lost on 840,000 dead people and counting. Could they have reduced their risk had they known or chosen to change their antecedent physiologic triggers that puts them in immunologic risk? I resoundingly think yes. Understanding the pathogenesis of this virus has taken some time, but it is the key to making educated choices to support immune responses. The bottom line is twofold with regard to prevention of SARS-2. First, support immune surveillance by making sure that the immune system is fine-tuned to recognize and destroy the virus early on so that it has minimal opportunity to replicate and hijack our immune system. Secondly, support survival if you get ill and the virus has the ability to replicate. This means that we want adequate and functional responses from natural killer cells and T helper type 1 cells. Then you need a low starting inflammation point so that when your immune system begins to inflame and attack the virus, you are not pushed into a place of overinflammation and death. Now we know that obesity, cardiovascular disease, and type 2 diabetes are major risk factors for negative COVID outcome. We also know that diseases are also associated with significant flares and aid immune responses like inflammasome activity. Therefore, one leap of faith seems to be that if we reduce the triggers of baseline inflammasome activity, then we could mitigate some of the downstream risk if, con if we contract SARS-2, Omicron. For example, reducing fructose or high fructose corn syrup consumption would reduce the metabolite uric acid, a known trigger of inflammasome formation and activity system-wide. This occurs notoriously in the mitochondria of the liver, muscles, and kidneys, inducing adipose deposition, insulin resistance, high blood pressure, and nephron damage of your kidneys. Inflammasomes also worsen coronary cardiac disease, which is seen in many COVID deaths. Panoptosis is a term used to describe cell death globally in the human body via the simultaneous activation of pyroptosis, apoptosis, and necroptosis in the same cell, leading to its inflammatory death. This appears to happen in a subset of severe COVID-19 patients who have severe obesity and inflammation. The greatest risk for all-cause human mortality appears to be the overconsumption of a refined foods that are loaded with poor quality fatty acids and huge glucose loads that drive insulin resistance via diacylglycerol inhibition of transcription of muscles GLUT4 transporter receptor, as well as the fat deposition of the secondary hyperglycemia insulinemia response. Large volume fructose ingestion in these same refined foods drives fat deposition via the metabolite uric acid through historical beneficial survival pathways in the mitochondria and liver. These processes lead to the obesity and the notorious for having immunologic activated fat cells that slant toward dysfunctional inflammatory macrophages. T cells that are activated and notorious for presentation and presenting excuse me, antigen to the immune system for reactivation or reaction leading to autoimmunity. These same fat cells also drive inflammasome responses and suppress natural killer cell activity as is well noted in the diabetics. The poster humans for hyperglycemia in general. 
There are many other nutrition-based issues to discuss, but for the sake of this piece, I will only add this. Corn and grain-fed animal meats are loaded with pro-inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids that are potentially driving excessive arachidonic acid production and cytokine responses, i.e. inflammation. These and other nutrition-based events conspire to reduce viral surveillance and killing while paradoxically increasing inflammation through inflammasome formation and cytokine release. This is a perfect storm for a bad outcome. This is only a small representation of the many changes that lifestyle modification could have on immune solvency and COVID risk in general, as discussed over the last two years. For me, I truly think that this virus is a wake-up call for all of us to eat whole foods that are minimally processed, mostly vegetables, fruits, legumes, seeds, and nuts, spiked with wild-caught, naturally-raised meat, fish, and eggs. Sleep more, stress less, exercise and move often, laugh, live, and prepare for the future. That is a dramatic recipe for inflammation reduction and protection. That is it, folks. That is the reality according to how I see the world right now. Omicron is here. It's going to be staying with us for a long time. We sort of need to get busy living, and we need to get busy living with our best versions of ourselves. So as always, hug those kids. Thank you for taking the time to sit and listen to this opinion-based podcast on Omicron and the science as well. As always, I appreciate your time, and have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this audio newsletter podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship.